Hi, it's Guy here. Welcome to another episode of Creative Forces. Thanks for listening, as always. Uh, thanks uh, for everyone who's got in touch as well. Uh, you're f- very welcome to get in touch with the podcast if you'd like to. Creativeforcespod at gmail.com. Let me know anything that you think, uh, anything that you'd like to ask. Or just you can get me via Twitter at uh, creativeforcesp. Give us a follow um, and also... Uh, just give me a shout, let me know what you think. Also, if you have the time, it'd be fantastic if you could rate the podcast through your podcast provider. It all really helps to boost our ratings and get us further up the chain and get us seen by more people. So I'd really appreciate it if you could give a rating, if you like the podcast. Now, before we get into who's in this latest episode, let me just tell you about two things, that uh, one in the very recent past and one in the very near future that I'm uh, very excited about. So last week, I got the chance to see one of the kings of the podcast movement, Mark Maron, uh, host, of course, of the brilliant WTF, one of my favorite podcasts. He was uh, playing in Salford, uh, just around the corner from where I live in South Manchester, and managed to get a ticket for that. And he was just as good as I hoped he would be. He had a really nice bit at the start about um, him going around Manchester and getting a shave, which he mentions actually in his latest uh, episode of WTF. Uh, But it was really funny just to think of him strolling around uh, Manchester. And yeah, it was a lot of fun. If you haven't listened to WTF, make sure you do as soon as you can. If you haven't seen Mark Maron live, do that too, because he was absolutely brilliant. Now, the thing in the near future that I'm really looking forward to, I'm recording this on Tuesday night, that's the 9th of April. And tomorrow night, Wednesday the 10th, I'm going to Old Trafford to see Manchester United take on the mighty Barcelona in the Champions League quarterfinals. Now, I've got a horrible feeling that Barcelona might turn United over, but I'm really looking forward to it. It's going to be an amazing occasion. It really reminds me of 2003. I went to see Real Madrid at Old Trafford, an amazing, an epic uh, Champions League night. Ronaldo, the original Ronaldo, scored an amazing hat-trick and he was applauded off and just the sense of occasion was absolutely amazing and what I'm really looking forward to as well is in that game I was in right by the corner flag and Zinedine Zidane Zizou was playing on the left hand side and I just spent uh, I think I can't remember if it was the first or the second half but I spent the whole half just watching him and his amazing uh, control of the football and so I'm hoping for a similar experience with uh, Lionel Messi hopefully though he uh, if he does go on a mazy run and gets through the entire defence he rolls it wide at the end. That's all I'm hoping for. So by the time this gets published, we'll know the result. But at this point, at least, I'm looking forward to the match. Anyway, to episode 31 and Ian McMillan. Now, Ian is a really well-renowned and much-loved poet, journalist, playwright and broadcaster. He's known as the Bard of Barnsley um, and his warmth and his humour and his Way With Words really shines through in his books and his TV and radio appearances and his frequent tweets. If you don't follow him, you should follow him on Twitter. Um, Now, he's still resident in his native South Yorkshire. He's also held a whole range of positions, uh, particularly poet in residence positions, including for Barnsley FC and Humberside Police and all sorts of other people. And in this really funny, he's very, very funny, Ian. I love talking to him. He's very open um, about the decisions he's made and the the path, the career path that he's taken. You can hear him explain how he discovered being a poet that was funny uh, could be a big advantage for him, why he's really governed by the freelance lifestyle and means he's always 
saying yes and where that's led him to. Um, and also why he loves performing in village halls. So we're talking on World Book Day. So first thing to say is Happy World Book Day. Happy World Book Day. It's like, it's like National Poetry Day. Yeah. It's the two days of the year when writers get to work. <laughs> because normally you just sit about staring into space. But I guarantee you that the day before World Book Day and the day before National Poetry Day, schools all over Britain ring up and go, are you free tomorrow? <laughs> and you go, that's like asking Father Christmas yeah. if he's free on Christmas Day. So yes, Happy World Book Day. Are you a big fan of World Book Day? I am, because uh, I'm a fan of all these days, because they actually concentrate the mind, mm. and they make you think, all right, I'm going to think about books. At the moment, books are on the crest of a wave. Books are doing really well. But the fact that, you know, my granddaughter's gone to school today dressed as Goldilocks, you know, and me, me producer on my other programme uh, has gone to school dressed as a wardrobe <laughs> for The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe. It just makes people think hard. What I don't like about it is that, you know, he'll say to this school, I'll come in uh, on National Poetry Day's Boxing Day, i.e. Yeah. the day after, they go, no, it's all right, we've done poetry, it's fine, thanks, <laughs> do it next year. So they're both a great thing because they concentrate a mind, yeah. but they're a bad thing because they concentrate the mind because sometimes they concentrate it too much. And I suppose on the other hand, you know, when it's World Armadillo Day, <laughs> you think, right, I'm an armadillo <laughs> man, I'll take my armadillo but they won't want it tomorrow no. because they don't want to talk about armadillos tomorrow. So somehow you have to believe in your head that books are more important than armadillos in that you can talk about them all year. I'd like to see, you know, World Book Month, yeah. World Book Decade. That'd be fine, wouldn't it? Like, is it UNESCO? They have yeah. decades of stuff. Yeah. So that'd be all right. World Book Decade would do me. You'd never have to take your wardrobe off. <laughs> I guess one of the benefits of, of being a published writer is you don't have to dress up on World Book Day. but uh, as, yourself. You, as yourself. Yeah, you can be yourself. But if you were going to dress up as anyone, if you had to, would is there anyone that you would... Think about a character. Oh, definitely. Uh, well, I, as a writer, yeah. I would I would dress up as Jack Kerouac. Okay. Oh yeah, I'd put on I'd have a on these plaid shirts that he wore, and I'd have some jeans on and boots that looked like they'd gone a long way. They'd walked a long <laughs> way, and in in my back pocket, I'd have a notebook with half-finished poems in it, in one back pocket. In the other back pocket, I'd have some really obscure book of poetry, and I'd wear even though it was dark. I'd wear dark glasses. Yeah, I would definitely. Jack Kerouac, when I was a kid, he was, he was my hero. Cause, was he? Partly because, you know, my te- a lot of us can point to a teacher at school who was an inspiration. And for me, it was this bloke, Mr. Brown. Mm. Mr. Brown. Who, he turned up at our secondary school and he had a, he had a green corduroy suit on. <laughs> and he looked glamorous. <laughs> my mate said to me, why is he wearing a corrugated iron shed? And, and he, had, he had a copy of Jack Kerouac in his pocket. And he went, right. yeah, read that. Just poking out. Yeah, just poking out. And he had, he had pens in his top pocket and he looked so blooming glamorous and bohemian. And he went, Brilliant. yeah, read this. And I'm going, who's this? Jack Kerouac. And he said, you'll enjoy this because it's just a fella travelling about. It's just a bloke travelling about and he's writing about it. And then, and I was a sixth former at the time and I mm. was writing the kind of poems that sixth form is right, and I was reading Ted Hughes and people like that. But Jack Kerouac, and he said, by the way, he wrote his first novel on a roller wallpaper. It was just a continuous, right, yeah. and I went, blimey, that's fantastic. Didn't so, he sort of stay up all night for stayed a few up all days night, and just, did it? Just wrote it, yeah, yeah, just wrote it. And then, of course, as a sixth form, you think, I'll try that. Yeah. I'll try staying up all night <laughs> and doing it. And you're going, <laughs> and so this is terrible. I remember thinking, this is true, I thought, if I take my shoes and socks off, I've got really... Like rough carpet in the house. That'll keep me awake. So I'm sitting there, my mum says, You're going to bed? I said, No, I'm going to just bit of writing, bit of writing. Why have you taken shoes and socks off? The carpet's going to keep me awake. And then you read that thing that they're always having 
I mean, I weren't taking drugs, but they, they always eat the drinking coffee. Yeah. They have endless coffee. So I thought, right, I'm going to get some coffee. And the only coffee we had, because my mum and dad didn't Helps drink you coffee. you to stay up all night, I guess. It does. But <laughs> the, all that we had was this camp. Remember camp coffee? No. Oh, it, was, it, was like, it, was, it was actually horrible. It was like, <laughs> it was like grease. It was like a, it was coffee essence. Right. And the, the, the label on the thing was fantastic. It was, a, it was the Indian Raj. And there's a, there's a bloke sat outside a tent and the flag. And it said, ready I ready. And so you think, right, I'll have some of that. So I'm drinking this horrible camp coffee, <laughs> rubbing my feet on this thing, feeling terrible. And, you know, I went to bed about half ten. <laughs> I thought you were staying up all night. You know, shut up, I'm going to bed. You did so like half a page. <laughs> but he was, oh, he was the man he heard. So yeah. if, I get, and if I could get dressed up as a character from a book, just because I've spent so much time in schools with kids mm. and in libraries, I would get dressed up as Postman Pat because really? you often see you see these librarians. They go, "It's your turn, friend." <laughs> Is it? Oh no! So you see him going, "Where's he gone?" I'll be back in a minute, and he comes out like a football mascot. <laughs> but it's Postman Pat. But I used to know not very well, but I knew him vaguely. John Cunliffe, yeah, the late John Cunliffe, yeah. who wrote Postman Pat. What a lovely, lovely man! And sometimes he'd get dressed up as Postman Pat. Oh really? They turn up at the school and they go. Who's this? Postman Pat. And he go, hey, and he whip his head off. And he go, John Cunliffe. And the, ki- <laughs> the kids were always kind of, oh, he's only John Cunliffe. We thought it was Postman Pat. He thought it was the real Pat. So that's where I'd be. I'd be, I'd be. And then, you know, what would happen is it'd be World Book Day and I couldn't find all the stuff. So I'd have to get dressed up as like Postman Jack. <laughs> like half and half. So I'd have like a, a plaid shirt and like a blue hat <laughs> and glasses and, and bohemian stuff. Yeah, that'd be good. That sounds like the uh, a great character for a, a new novel. Postman, Postman Jack. Jack. Postman Pat. combination that'd be of great. Postman Pat and Jack Kerouac. Yeah, it'd be on the road to Greendale, wouldn't it? It'd be like Postman Jack. That'd be so great. And he'd go out delivering letters to all the other, like William Burroughs. He's got a letter. That'd be so great. You just invented something there, yeah, guy. This, we'll do it. This could Postman work. Jack. <laughs> It'd be a great idea, wouldn't it, for mashups yeah. of kids' stories and and real things, <laughs> and so you could have or kids' stories and adult books. So you could have you could have uh, I don't know, rather Humpty Dumpty <laughs> fell off a wall. You'd have like Proust, Proust, <laughs> Proust fell off a wall and wrote a thousand-page novel about it. Oh God, I wow. There's there's a, there's something in this. There's a series. <laughs> <laughs> so Jack Kerouac was a big hero. Yes. Who else? Who else were the who were the, who was the like the the first big inspiration for you? Well, to, I'll tell you to what. Write? I mean, it was it was to do with where I'm from because mm. I've always lived in a village near Barnsley. And this the, is Darfield. Darfield, yeah, I still live there. It's just uh, just outside Barnsley, and because I'm because uh, I was born in 1956, mm. I went to a school in the West Riding of Yorkshire, and the West Riding was run by the godlike genius Sir Alec Clegg, mm. who was the chief education officer of the West Riding, who said, all children are creative. Everybody can write, everybody can sing, everybody can dance, everybody can paint, everybody can act. So our school in Darfield, Low Valley County Primary, at the end of every lesson, we'd write a story. Mm. We'd sing a song, we'd dance a dance. Without Alec Clegg, I wouldn't have been doing this. He's a, such a hero. He said, it's what they call these days, trendy left-wing teaching. <laughs> it's, right, it's child-centred. It's a bit like what like Sir Ken Robinson's been talking very about much for like the last that. few very years. Very much like it? that. He's yeah. getting the children back at the heart of learning. Mm. And also, it, not in so many words, but it's implied, they go, there's Charles Dickens, there's Emily Bronte, there's Jack Kerouac, and there's you. There's, mm. You are a writer. So it's him. He's the hero, mm. Jack Kerouac. And so then, we're all, my mum used to go and get her hair done every fortnight at the next village in Great Oakland with her mate mm-hmm. Molly and she'd come back with a lot of comics from Jack Brooks newsagents so the, the comics they were the first things I read right. I used to what get a lot they? of comics oh, I used to get Beano I used to yeah, get too okay, many yeah. Beano 
Dandy, Victor, yeah. Valiant, which was a forgotten one, and what my mother called a commando book, right. which were like those little commando magazines. So people who influenced me were like uh, Captain Hurricane. Right. Who used to, the, he was a bit like the Hulk. Right. He was like a Cockney version of the Hulk, and he'd get into a raging fury, and he'd like rip his shirt off, <laughs> and he had big muscles. And um, Billy Wiz, oh, who was yeah? this kid who used to run, run really I fast. I remember Billy Wiz and, from the B And he used to, and then you thought, I can do that. I can do that. That was a great thing. Because at West Riding, you're going, I can do that. I can write these comics. So I'd get, I'd write comics. I'd just write comics all the time. And I'd get these big red exercise books and just write epic, epic comics. Did just you draw them as well? Or I drew you? them. Rubbish. <laughs> Terrible. The, the words were all right, but the, the drawing was like some kind of thing that you might stick on a fridge that your infant grandson's done. <laughs> they were terrible. I wasn't much bigger than an infant, obviously. But, <laughs> but then I remember thinking, I, wrote, I watched... It must have been some kind of detective thing on the telly. Big fan of the Avengers when mm. I was a kid. And I wrote a detective novel called Jazz and Big Shelley. Wow. And Jazz was like this glamorous woman. Right. And Big Shelley was... I thought I'd, I'd do it differently because Jazz was the main one. She was kind of based on Emma Peel or somebody out of the Avengers. And Big Shelley was her assistant, who was this big fat bloke based on the bloke who used to walk past our house every night who worked at the pit, and they, oh, it's Big Shelley. And I, I remember, my dad got me a typewriter. Right. So I remember typing these out, laboriously typing these things out. And so then I wrote this, what I thought was a novel. And then, and 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 it was always encouraged. Right. That I've always, I always encourage people because I say, encouragement is the thing. Yeah. I've always been encouraged. I'm the luckiest man in the world. People have always encouraged me at school, at home, yeah. with parents. I've always said, you can do this. I've always said to people, you can do this. So mm. my mum and dad got me a typewriter. I'm writing these things. Mm. I'm giving them to the teacher at school. I'm printing them out. I'm stapling them together. So it just became like, and you felt, I can do this. I'm, this, is, this is a job. I can do this. But then, you know, as I often think back, you go to the library mm. and you get a book out and it says... The author spends all year in Surrey, apart from two weeks in the Algarve. <laughs> and you think, well, I spend all year in Darfield, apart from two weeks in Thornwick Bay. And you think, and that was the trouble, trying to find models for yeah. who you could be. Yeah. And eventually it became people like the Northern writers, like Ted Hughes. Yeah. My teacher, Mr Brown, the one who introduced me to Jack Kerouac, when Ted Hughes just published a book called Crow, mm. he got this book out, he said, do you like this? It's a book of jokes by a comedian. I said, really? I didn't know they were poems. And, I said, and afterwards he went to the poems, by the way. I thought, blimey. And he only came from Mexpress. So he's just like from six miles down the road from Darfield. And you think, gosh, he's a model. And then people like Barry Hines, mm. Kestrel for a Nave, and people like Stan Barstow. And you think, oh, actually, you can do this. You can write it. But then Mr Brown, because I was thick, I thought... Essay was spelled S full stop, A full stop, <laughs> and it stood for special assignment. Right. And I remember writing this essay for him, and I put my essay, essay, by Ian McMillan, future Nobel Prize for Literature winner. And he says, Ian, Nobel Prize winners don't come from Darfield. And I, I kind of disagree with that. I said, no, actually, they can, they can. And there was always this thing. If you want to do well, you want to be a writer, Ian, move to London, move to London. Miss Grace said, you've got to move to so London. So how old are you then when people were telling you <clears> to do I was, that? Um, I started doing my, my GCE, so I was about... 14, 15. I was writing poems. So they'd sort of recognise in you that there they'd was a talent. That, well, there, not, potentially. maybe not a talent, but kind of a show offness. You know what I mean? Or wanting to <laughs> or do desire it. Or to desire, do wanting it. to be a writer, wanting to be that person. And they, I think, with the best will in the world, were saying, you can't do it here. And I've always, always disagreed with that. I think mm. wherever you are, wherever you are, that can be the place. You can do the universal in the local. Whatever you write about, that can be the thing. So 
I wanted to be a writer, and I was writing poems and sending them off and getting them published in magazines and uh, wanting to be a writer. But then my dad, because nobody had ever been to university or college in our family, he said, mm. you want to, I want you to go to... Because my dad was uh, in the Royal Navy. Him and my mum met as pen pals in the right. war. Because my mum was from Barnsley and he was from Scotland. And that, that's the other reason writing's important to me, I think, because they met mm. through writing. Right. And he went, Ian, go to college. To work hard, go to college. So... I didn't work that hard, so I ended up at North Staffordshire Polytechnic. <laughs> Fantastic. Did a degree called Modern Studies. And but at the same time I'm writing, I'm standing up in folk clubs reading poems. Me and my mate formed this comedy duo. Mm. So it was the thing you think, I want to do this. I want to do this as a job. And but at the same time you're thinking, well, how can I do this without moving away? So mm. then I left college, went to work in manual jobs, but then in nineteen eighty one there was this thing called Yorkshire Arts, mm. which was the Arts Council equivalent in Yorkshire. And they were just giving out these grants and they were giving up, up to £1,000 if you gave a job up and went freelance. And £1,000 now is a lot of money. Mm. And in them days, a massive amount of money. And How long would that have lasted you then? Quite a while, because my wife was working. She was a teacher, so I thought, I, I, I can, it made me last quite a bit, you know. So yeah. I was working in this tennis ball factory and I applied <laughs> for this 1000 quid. And they gave me 800 quid, which wasn't... It was interesting that. I've always th thought about this, because it's not that much less. Yeah. But actually, psychologically, it's a lot less. Thousand yeah. pound, 800 quid. Yeah. But luckily, my wife and my parents went, go on, then give your job up. Give your job up. If that's what you want to do, give it up. And and then, as you know, freelance, you kind of stand <laughs> there going, right, I'm here. Come on, come on, I'm ready. And then no, I'm, nothing yeah. happened. Nothing happened. I'm stood there going, come on, I'm ready. Come on, world. And then my mate Ray Hearn... He said, I'm going to start a new cultural revolution in South Yorkshire through the medium of writing workshops. Right. I went, I'm your man. <laughs> so I started doing these writing workshops all over South Yorkshire on the bus. And what were they then? It was they were just like poetry. It was the WEA, so the Workers' Education. Them. They'd come to them. So like every yeah. week you get ten people turn up, you'd, they'd write poems and stories. Right. And I was so... I you'd was young. guide them. Yeah, and I'd guide them. I'd get them I'd, and I was so young that I was saying things like, you don't have to write, they don't have to rhyme. Yeah, and... They're always writing rhyming poems because they've been writing for years, and I was being a bit arrogant. Mm. But yeah, I did a lot of that, so I was doing loads of them. And then I used to write reviews for NME. I used to go and write, I used to go see bands, and it was like the worst. It was great, it was wonderful. But you'd you'd write this review, you'd type it out, yeah. You'd take it to Barnsley Station, you'd put it on Red Star Parcel. <laughs> it would then go down to London, St Pancras, with somebody on a bike and pick it up and take it to NME. And you used to get £16.50 for writing these reviews, but it cost you 13 quid to send them. So I get like three quid. Then I started doing things like there was... Uh, it's crazy to think of that now, by the way. It is, it, you it know, is ridiculous. The but cost it, of sending... It's stuff by Red uh, Star Parcel, yeah. yeah. And it had to be there. I mean, these days, you email it, obviously. Yeah. And things like the Rotherham Arts Centre would do these lunchtime cabarets where you'd stand up and read your poems for an hour, they'd pay six quid. It was great. They used to, but you get a letter, you think, here's me six quid. And it was a, a letter saying, will you accept six quid? He'd write back going, yes, I will accept six quid. And they'd write back saying, here's a contract of six quid. You write back saying, here's me signed contract. Then you get six quid. And then I was writing jokes for uh, Weekending. It used to be this programme on Radio 4 called Weekending. Yeah. Me and my mate would sit writing jokes. Because we didn't have faxes or all like that, you'd have to write, you're up for something funny on Monday to Tuesday. And you'd send this thing off. That I do remember vividly. We got some jokes accepted, and they used to pay two or three quid for these jokes. Yeah. And then they said, we like your jokes, can you come down to a script meeting? We said, yeah, we will. So we went down, stayed the night before in <laughs> London, in somebody's house, got there. We weren't late, but they'd finished early. We went here for the script meeting. <laughs> oh, it's finished. Oh, 
<laughs> we got some. We stood there with our pathetic joke. We've got these jokes here. Oh, all right. Do you remember what the joke yes, is now? I do because we they actually used it. It was. Um, <laughs> it's like germane to the action. It said, following BBC Colin Cuts to BBC children's programmes and religious. Uh, BBC have been accused of robbing Blue Peter to pay St Paul. <laughs> That's worth three quid of anybody's money. Following Blue Peter cuts, no, following BBC cuts, the part of Walter Gabriel in The Arches will now be played by a squeaky door. Stuff like that. And we went in and we got these jokes. We'd, we'd <laughs> we're three quid. So we turn up and we go, we've got these jokes. And they go, you've missed the meeting. And we go, ah, oh, just come down from bloody Rotherham. And they're going, There's a f go and see the editor. He's down there. And he's eating a sausage roll. Right. You'll know which one. You it can't is. miss him. So you can't miss him. But we could because we go in this room. There's two blokes, in. <laughs> and we're going. And one of them got up and went. Well, no, the other fellow went. We got these jokes. When you want to give them to him, <laughs> so we went. And we chased this bloke down the thing, and he's got this. We see the jokes. We just come down. And, oh yeah, sorry. Yeah, yeah. All right. Oh, we'll take the one. We'll take that one about the <laughs> Robbie Blue Peter to pay St Paul. We'll take that one about the thing. And we thought our fortune's made. This is great. So and you so knew it was possible we knew as it was well. Possible. But then the terrible tragedy was. <laughs> <laughs> I can laugh about it now. <laughs> but we put it. They put it on and forgot to use our names. Oh. So they went, "Here's this joke," and we're going, "We're on in a minute." Here we go. Oh, you know, it's like it's happened to us all. But then, so then it was just after that you just start doing stuff, and you know that being freelance, mm. you just accept every job you're offered. And they go, "Can you do that? Yeah, I can do that. <laughs> can you do that? Yes, I can do that." And then you go. How the hell can I do that? Yeah. That led to me going into lots of schools. Yeah. Somebody rang up and said, can you go into a school? I said, yeah, I do a school. What do I do? And just go in and just... Yeah, you kind of say yes and then work yes. out afterwards. That's right. and then, and that made me, As it gets nearer the time, yeah, oh, right, yeah, how am I going to do this? Taking it on. <laughs> but then, to me, the joy is, as you know, if, if, if you do it and it don't work, they don't ask you again. Yeah. And it don't matter. Yeah. But then if it does work, so schools, loads of schools, can you come and do this performance? Yes, I can do that. The radio started with um, a wonderful producer for Radio Sheffield called Dave Sheesby, mm. who's not with us anymore. But it's hard to believe now, but this is way back in the mid-80s. The whole afternoon sequence on BBC Radio Sheffield was speech, and it was education to go into schools programmes. So he said, yeah. I want to interview you. I said, all right. I made him laugh. He said, can you make me laugh every week? I said, yeah. I had no idea. I said, yeah, I'll make you laugh. <laughs> so I did this weekly 15-minute thing called Letter from Barnsley. Right. So I write this thing and do it. He said, can you do it live? Well, yeah. So then, as you know, you go, first time you do it, you're going, yeah. you can't speak. You went out drinking water, then you're going, anyway, hello. And, and then he went, that's all right, can you, can you and your mate, Martin, do a weekly show on a Saturday morning? Oh, yeah. And again, it's like, it's like the Blue Peter to pay St Paul, you're going, our fortune's made. Yeah. We, I remember vividly this meeting, we sat in Martin's house, we're going, how much are you going to pay us? This is about 1980. Is this Martin who you wrote the jokes Martin, with as yeah. well? Then? No, yeah. different, different. This role. is someone else. Someone right? else, yeah. So I'm going, I think they'll pay us 200 quid each and they'll send a taxi to the house because they don't want it. And, this, and they went, the fee is £15 each and can you get the train? <laughs> so, but we still did it and it was great. Yeah. And we, do think we had a producer called Bob Hazelwood and we used to do things like, he'd meet us at Sheffield Station with the radio car and we start the programme in the radio car and drive up to the thing. And one week I said... As you were on the move. Yeah, well, it's brilliant. And then one week I said, let's pretend the microphone's not working to see what happens. So we went... Hello, it's Ian and Martin with the Saturday morning show. Fred, we can't start this week because the microphones aren't working, so we put a record on. And then people are ringing up going, we can hear you. You're coming through, you're coming through in Doncaster. And that was just great, great training. Just experimenting. Just doing it. it. And, yeah. and then Dave Sheesby moved to Radio 4 
He went, you got any ideas for Radio 4? I went, yeah. And so they tried to think of ideas. So that, that's my thing. I've yeah. always said yes. Always said yes. And then I guess that's the th- it's quite liberating doing that, isn't it? Because oh, as, yeah. as you say, if it doesn't work, mm. you don't get asked again. Mm. But if things do work, you get sort yeah. of... And, moves on to the next thing, doesn't and, it? And as you know, you, you, you'll meet people, yeah. And then they'll be they'll ring you up from somewhere else. They go, by the way, I've moved to this. Yeah, I'm doing that. And it can be a couple of years later. Yeah, it can't can they it? go? Can you do that? You go, yeah. yeah. And and then you end up doing it. But th- the trouble is, you do end up rushing about. Yeah. And maybe not, maybe sometimes not being as good as the thing you were doing if you hadn't done three things already and gone on to do another <laughs> yeah, thing. Yeah. But then that's just a freelance disease. Yeah. I said to my wife fairly recently I said look I'm I'm going to drift down towards retirement in the next few years and she went retire from what <laughs> I said yeah good point very good point yeah well, can, you know because she said you'll not stop writing stuff I said no so what I'm doing at the moment is hmm. I'm doing still doing the same amount of radio but I do a lot of gigs hmm. uh, I did this thing again radio I did this I like doing gigs in village halls and because I like doing gigs in village halls we might, with Tony why, why village halls because it's just it's always different. Mm. It's always a fairly small space. So you might get 80, 90 people in. You'll get a whole range of ages, from grandchildren to grandparents. You'll get people who've come because they trust the person putting it on mm. is going to put something good on. So they're just they're great and they're all different. So me and my mate Tony Husband and a musician called Luke Carver-Goss, we do this show. Yeah. And they had me on Radio 4 and you and yours last year because they knew I did a lot of Village Halls. And I said, yeah. And they just said, talk about Village Halls while you like them. So I'm talking about him, and then I went, I, I kind of got possessed by this demon, and I went, I want to perform in every village hall in Britain. <laughs> and the agent, Adrian, texted me and went, I surrender. <laughs> and then, so, here we are, and I'm, that's what I'm doing. So, like, one a week, village halls. So, last week, I was at a place called Gorsworth, right, near Macclesfield. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, tomorrow, I'm in Cranley, which right. is in Surrey, not far from Guildford. Oh, wow, so you are rushing everywhere, around. Everywhere, just, but I'm doing just one of them a week, so... So at the moment, it's I'm a, an interesting phase in what mm. I laughingly call my career because I'm trying to be more balanced. But then my wife just looks at me with this kind of cynical look and goes, somebody will ring you up and you go, and <laughs> yeah. you think, yeah, you will, because it's all you've ever done. Yeah. You, you, like you, you know, you've never had a job, so you think, i better do it. It's funny, the whole freelance thing, isn't it? Because I, I have had full-time jobs, yes, but then yes. I've come out, I've aye, aye. naturally gravitated back to being freelance. Yes. I? And obviously, being freelance has its positives. Mm. Like, for me, I, I just think it suits me much more yeah, having... Yeah. That sort of it gets me up in the morning. Yes, the yeah. challenge every day yeah. of finding the new theme. Obviously, it has its pitfalls too because oh, every day you're not working or you, well, you're true, constantly yeah. worrying about it. Some people, know, I, mean, I think, but temperamentally, it don't suit some yeah, people. That's I think it's, it it's, it's, it's something that you're compelled to do, yeah. really, isn't it? It's just my how son, you are, how you wired. A, a poet. He, he made his, he, he, in in 2012 when there was a quite a lot of money washing about for the cultural Olympiad. Mm. He went freelance. He left university. And he got loads of work all over the country, doing residencies, performances. But after a bit, he said, I, I prefer to get a job. Yeah. So I'm like the opposite of most dads. I went, well, get a job. Yeah. But then he, and now he's got a job. So yeah, you just have to be temperamentally suited to it. Yeah. And if you don't want to do it, don't force yourself to do it. No. If you do like to do it, then just do it, I say. That's it. I Particularly agree. these days when we are living through bad times. We're living through hard times, mm. terrible times. But then I think, well, it was quite hard in the 80s when I started. It was bad. Mm. And you still manage... Through saying yes and through doing stuff, you can. There's mo- there is mm. there's work around. I think even in these times, there's work about. Just back to those early days, you mentioned that your mum and dad really encouraged you. But yeah. what, what? And you mentioned your dad was in the navy. Yeah. What 
what did they do? What did you do apart from that? And what, what did your mum do? What was well, life it, like back then? They met as pen pals in the war, like mm. I say. So um, they got married on a 48-hour pass. It was this wonderful romantic tale where they, there was a scheme where single service people could write to each other. So my dad's in the Navy hmm. and my mum's in the WAFs stationed over in Lancashire and my dad's sailing the world. And they just got together through letters, so they wrote to each other. They fell in love through letter. Which so they a, didn't know each other didn't before they started writing letters? They heard of each other. They just started writing to each other and he wrote to her and she wrote to him and they kind of exchanged photographs <laughs> and, and then they kept trying to meet for afternoon tea at Queen's Hotel in Leeds <laughs> because it was the war, the trains weren't working so well. So, and they yeah. only met about three or four times before they got married. And because it was the war, that's what people did because yeah. my, dad, my dad knew he was off to the Far East, to the South China Seas, and it, and, and on a destroyer. Hmm. So he sent my mum this telegram, get leave now. And my mum sends this telegram back, cannot get leave. And my dad sends this other telegram, get leave now. <laughs> Meanwhile, he's got on a train from Plymouth up to Peebles in Scotland where they're going to get married. My mum, they won't give her leave. Right. She's 48 hour pass. She goes, look, my sailor boy, I want to get married to him. He's going off. He might so how old were they by, at this point? By 19, my mother. Right. And, it, and, it, what, and what an adventure. Yeah. So they said, no, you can't go. So my mum nipped off at fence, <laughs> got on a train at Wigan Wallgate Station. I always said to my mum, it sounds made up with this, but it's true. I said to my mum, how, how did you get over the fence? She went, Elsie distracted the sergeant. I went, oh, I'm not asked. <laughs> Elsie, Elsie, your accomplice. So, that's right. So, so they get there, they have, they have one night together in Tontino Hotel in Peebles. My dad then disappears for two years on secret war work, and my mum goes back to Waffs and gets arrested. <laughs> two weeks in Glasshouse for going AWOL. And, and that was their story. That amazing. was always their thing. That's amazing. So, it's amazing. I wrote a play about it for Radio 4 in verse. And it was just, and what struck me after a bit was, mm. That it was true, but they'd embroidered bits of it. Because mm. my dad would say, I was standing there at the top of the steps with a bolt of Chinese silk under my arm. Because <laughs> he got this Chinese silk from Shanghai that his sister was going to make into a wedding dress for my mum. But at the end of time, my right. mother gets off at the wrong station, because there were three stations, runs up the main street of Peebles, a waff hat falls off. And they tell this story endlessly. My dad then went left the Navy in 1958 when I was two, went to work in an office in Sheffield. But every night he'd come home. My mum would put pearls on and they'd retell that story and Amazing. they'd elaborate on it. So I owe them that, that yeah. story. And my dad was just the most gentle man. He was just, he just went fishing, he just told stories, he'd sing, he sang, he sang all the time. I think that's why I like hmm. music and work with because he just sing, just sang. As he was just doing, going just about a, his day. Hey, one of them, but he'd sing, he'd sing <laughs> Donald Wears Your Trousers. Yeah. That was his, his favourite. When I did Desert Island Dish, I had that on. Cause, but the thing was, he had a lovely voice, my dad, and he loved washing up. He had his pinny on. He had a Macmillan tartan pinny, suddenly he got him. He said, let the wind blow, hey, let the wind blow. <laughs> but the thing was, because he knew it so well, he'd just sing bits of it. So it was like listening to some kind of mixtape. <laughs> so he'd just sing bits, let the wind blow. <laughs> and then if, the other song he loved was Puppet on a String by Sandy Shaw. Yeah. And, and he'd go, hey, wonder. <laughs> and my mum would go, sing the whole song. But what was so beautiful and touching was that he, he had a stroke, which was like a terrible thing for a fellow who'd always been active. Yeah. And then, but he never stopped singing. He'd sit in his house, let the wind blow, hey. And then, he, when he died, he was in hospital, you know, he, he was still singing. He, were, he, were, he couldn't speak, but you could see him going, let the wind blow. And you think, and that's why I've always, I've always thought music and poetry are so hmm. allied. But then my mother, him and my, my dad, it were like an idyllic childhood of just been in this place and reading and writing and talking and always them saying, if you want to be a writer, be a writer. If you want to do it, do it. If you want to do it, do it. My brother, he, he just worked in an office. He was, and he had a great life and all. It was mm. just, and my wife, 
we were like childhood sweethearts. I met she was at the same school. Yeah. Been married 40 years now. And it was Mr. Brown, the English teacher. He had an amazing voice, Mr. Brown. Don't like this. <laughs> he does voiceovers. Wow. If you want, when you watch Channel 4, he goes, Channel 4. That's him, Rob Brown. Because he. <laughs> well, now you mean yeah, he's back. still on. Oh, really? he, what happened was, he came to our school. Right. And. Mr. Brown. <laughs> And, and I said, was it ever explained why his voice? Was well, like I that? think it just it was it was just his voice how he was. Right. Hello, students. But what happened was it was like it was That's only our school for two years. Yeah, he'd only he'd only been at our school. It was only our school for two terms. And while I was there, I fancied Catherine. She was in the other form. I said to Mr. Brown, oh, I like I like that girl. <laughs> and he went, I'll tell her. And I, and he, I could see him like down the corridor. He went, yeah, <laughs> so then, but then the great bit of the story is I mean, then we got we out and we got married eventually. But then he left our school after two terms, and he went. He went. He lived near Soho, and he goes in this pub in Soho, and he went pint of beer. And this man went, "Is that your real voice?" Went, yes. He said, "Follow me to this recording studio," and he started doing the first one he did. What about years and years ago? Thirty odd years ago. There used to be an advert for Link Shampoo. Right, yeah. these cave women came yes. out. And they, they took the brown off and put a rock in the brown and threw it and he went, the Link's effect. And that's Mr. Brown <laughs> doing the Link. And it, because he rang up. Are you still in oh, touch with him? Yeah, now? I am. He was in Exeter. Amazing. He rang up and went, Mr. Brown. And it, the thing was, because, this, is a, this sounds like a joke, but it's true. He, in those days, if you did a voiceover, every time it was on, you got 20 quid. So he was rich. Yeah. So rich. So he, he says, he rang up, he says, this is when, years after I'd left school, he says, I'm coming to see some mates in Rotherham, I'll come and see you. Because he'd always kept in touch. I says, yeah. And I said to my kids, Mr Brown's coming, the Lynx effect, man. And they said, will he say the Lynx effect? I said, yeah, I'll try and work in the conversation. So he gets out of his car, he said, just say it for the kids, you Lynx effect. But then he does, he does Channel 4, you can tell it's him, he's got yeah. that deep voice. And the thing is, I mean, I've done a few voiceovers, mm. and it's, it's a particular skill. I like doing them because... It makes you think really hard about language yeah. and about where to place language. Yeah. But, I mean, I've only got this voice. Your, your best voiceover artist can do what, whatever the, the director wants them to do. Or but speak he, he very cannot, deeply. Yeah, and he can only do that. You know, yeah. that's all he can do. I did one for... Um, I mean, I love the language they use. I did one for yeah. Purcell Blue Gel. I had to go, Purcell Blue Gel, it gets tough stains out. <laughs> and he went, that word, tough. Can you make it a bit more mysterious? <laughs> so you have to go, personal blow jelly goes, oh, stains it. And then he went, that word stains. Can you feather it away halfway through, then return it just before the cusp? And you go, on, <laughs> the so cusp of the stains. Cusp of, so I went, personal blue jelly goes, oh, <laughs> And you know, it's like the, you, you, you do about 500. Then they go, we like number 94. We'll just play it back to you. I'm just about to do one. I do one for a, a programme on More 4 called. Hmm. The Dales and Lakes. <laughs> We're about to do the next series of that. And that was, you do it in a little studio in Leeds. And I like to stand up and wave my arms back because it helps you to really yeah. notice the breathing. And I did it last year and it was warm in the studio like it always is. And I came out and I wiped my face. And the engineer recalled in horror because my face was going in black mud. Because <laughs> what happened was, I was talking that much, my ears had got that up, I'd melted the cans. <laughs> so I had these, and it, I said, this has never happened before. I said, you never worked with a bloke from Barnsley before. He <laughs> says, this cost their old cans, I'll get some new ones. So yeah. these new cans, I damned again. It's all the, the, the stuff flakes off, yeah, doesn't it's like, it? Oh, it's yeah, it's terrible. So, so that, that, yeah, that, that was my, so my childhood 
I always think it was just like an idyllic. Just was it just one it. brother? Or did My you brother, have... R. John, yeah. yeah. I'm still in touch with him. He sounds just like me. <laughs> and he looks like me. I said, he's bald. <laughs> because Macmillan means son of the tonsured one. Right. So, like, my dad was bald at 21. Yeah. My son's bald. R. John's bald. R. John's kid's bald. But I've got this mop of hair from my mother. <laughs> and so, when R. John and me walked down the street, we looked like, like a novelty crew, it said. Because he just, just, but he, hello, him. Hello, John. All right. Yes, thanks. And he, he just, and he, he, I said to him, because he says people think he's me. He's got a caravan in Richmond in North Yorkshire. And, right. and he, sometimes people go, I heard you on radio, it's great. And I said to John, <laughs> just pretend, yeah. just set, take the compliment. So he was in this shop in uh, Richmond and somebody went, I like that thing you did on radio. And John went, oh, thanks very much. And then they asked him a difficult supplementary question. They went, what was the name of that fellow you were talking to? And John's going, oh, you know. <laughs> so I said, you can't do that. Oh, dear. So did your mum work as well or did no, she? No, she was a, what they call a housewife. She went, yeah. When she was younger, she um, worked in Woolworths right. in Barnsley. But then, no, she was just like a constant presence in the house. She looked after her mother. Uh, you know, like they did in those days. She looked after her mother, and then she looked after... We had this friend of the family called Auntie. Hmm. Well, she always looked after her. It was her house I was born in. Yeah. Uh, and so she was a big friend of family. And Auntie and Uncle Charlie. <laughs> Uncle Charlie was this fantastic bloke who worked down pit, and we used to play chess. He called it Chest. So shall we play chess? And I just can't actually because you do get people from South Yorkshire who call a hearse the funeral wagon a hearse. Right. So you like so. I'll play chess. But he thought I wrote a poem about it once. He thought that any piece could move in any direction and take any other piece, or you could swap them for bits of stuff for our house. So he'd like get a boiled egg and put it on. And so so there were that just like this oh, constant wow. delight, you know. And then but I was. People said to me, are you like this in house? Hmm. You know I'm not like this in house. In house, I'm really quiet. I just sit there in my vest. But, but, and I was a very quiet child. <clears throat> but then I thought, if I'd say silly things, that would make people laugh. Just that thing a lot of us have done. Yeah. Just by juxtaposing daft ideas. So I go, oh, this, this vase is made out of cheese or something. You know, it's like, like surrealism. I mean, I made people laugh. And then I thought, oh, I can make people laugh. So hmm. it was that really. It was just, I was a quiet lad. And then I discovered that I quite like showing off. Yeah. And that showing off is the best thing. And showing off is just great. And just being a stupid, ridiculous show-off <laughs> is just a great thing. And, you know, many living out of it, you know. But it's just, it's just, it's good. But I'm not a deep thinker, you know. And that's why I love being on Radio 3, because my producers make me think really hard. Right. And, you know, you have to read the books properly and you have to ask the questions properly. Mm. I always say it's not like Radio 4, where you go, tell me about your lovely book. <laughs> you have to go, tell me you know, something else about your lovely book. You have to really... Read it hard, and that's that's good because it makes me think hard. But really, I'm just a, a kind of show off who gets paid for showing off, which is all my you know, it's just great. I can't believe it because you do many, many like as yeah, we're talking about, things, you do yeah. lots of things. But I guess people think of you probably first and foremost as a poet, that's yes, probably the first yeah, thing people yeah, think of. But yeah. so, what was the sort of you know, and you mentioned like writing like Kerouac originally? Yeah. What did you originally want to be a, like a novelist? I did, was that I, the I first idea. Yeah, I was going to be a writer. Yeah, I had this idea, and I had a very specific idea. Cause there was this what book. age was you, were you then, by the way? 12 or 13, right. you know, I thought, I can be a writer. You had your sort of heart set on it then. I did, and yeah. it felt possible, Yeah. partly because of the encouragement I was getting yeah. at school, and then later on, 13 or 14, with Mr Brown at school. And also there was at Darfield Library, Mrs Dove, <laughs> got this book called Writing for Money, You Too Can Write for Money, by Harvey Day. It was brilliant. I wish I brought it to show you, it's fantastic. Because yeah. <laughs> I, I bought a copy of Amazon, and it's... Just like this about writing for money, you can do it, you can write for money, you can do it. It was written in a different time, you mm. know, so it was written when there were more outlets in magazines yeah. and that kind of thing. But it was, it was full of stories like um, 
So-and-so had 500 full-length books rejected before he had one published. So-and-so had both arms and his legs cut off in an accident, but still managed to write best-selling books with a pen stuck in his <laughs> mouth. You think, I could do that. I yeah. could do that. So I thought I'm going to be a writer, and I had a very specific image of me in a suit yeah. with leather patches on elbows, sitting at a desk and, like, staring out at window. Yeah. And writing a bit like that. I was a big fan of John Steinbeck. He was a great hero of mine. Yeah. Writing these fantastic social What was it about his writing? It was just um, the way that he seemed to be able to capture ordinary speech in writing Mm. and turn it up a notch and give it a kind of majesty and epic quality. So I'd Mm. read something like The Grapes of Wrath. Mm. I've always been a fan of American sentences. Mm. Somehow, Americans can write glamorous sentences. I'm a big fan of a... American short story writer called John Cheever, who writes mm. these amazing sentences. In his introduction to his stories, he says, it was a time when New York seemed to be lit by a river light and almost everybody wore a hat. Mm. You think, good God. <laughs> and it's partly to do with place names. Mm. You know, they're going to yeah. go to Albuquerque, which is better than going to Macclesfield in that way, you know. Yeah. It's better than going to Walsall. But, but it's, so I was always interested in Steinbeck's prose style. Mm. And so... You'll find stuff that I wrote when I was that age that's just mock Steinbeck, and that was. But then, at the same time as that, I was in the school play, and I was doing bits and thinking, oh, you can you can stand up, you can perform, mm. you can make people laugh. And I thought, how do you marry the two? Because you can't get up. You could get up and read a story, but you couldn't really. So mm. then, Mr. Brown encouraged me to write poems. So I wrote poems, which were typical kind of adolescent stuff. Mm. Um, and then, I remember you could stand up at school and read them. So I thought, you can read poems. And it felt like, I don't know, a bit more a bit more glamorous mm. to read poems. And at the time, you got people like the Liverpool poets, like Roger McGough and people like that were on the up, and, and the idea of being a poet as a living felt like it was possible. So when I was a student, I went along to a place called the Arvon Foundation, which is up in uh, Heptonstone, near Hebden Bridge. Mm. And that's a place where they have two professional poets for a week with 16 students of any age who just sit and write poems. And the guy there was a guy called Pete Morgan, who's dead now, but a fantastic inspiration to me. And he looked like a poet. He was tall, he was really handsome, mm. he had a big chest, he wore denim, and he'd like read these poems. And you think, God, oh, I could do that. And so then, but you think, well, where do I do it? What do I do? <laughs> so then me and my mate Martin, the guy I did the radio programme with, yep. who's dead now, but we, we'd go to folk clubs and stand up and read poems in folk clubs. And they were very accepting. Hmm. And then you'd you'd start getting odd readings. There was a place, there was a magazine called The Urbane Gorilla that came out in Sheffield. They'd have these things called Urbane Gorilla Nights up West Street, the Red Deer pub upstairs. And you'd turn up and you were nervous and you had your poems yeah. like that. And you'd read them out and they encouraged you. It was great. And I remember the first time Did I went... Did you get paid for those? <clears throat> no. no. No, not at all. It was... It's really good experience. And experience, for the, yeah, yeah, yeah. You'd turn up and... I remember the first time we went, there was a bloke upstairs playing the saxophone, and his mate was reading from his gas bill. <laughs> I thought, I've arrived, this is heaven. <laughs> God, it was fantastic. 48 pence to pay. <laughs> and so then, yeah, so then you start, and that just teaches you to just control your voice, yeah. not be nervous, because people get nervous, and I used to get nervous, but what I tell people is, everything that can happen's happened. Yeah. They've chucked stuff, they've worked out, you've turned up to the wrong place, you've fallen down. At the moment they happen, they're terrible, but what I said to people is, just think in geological time. So in 10,000 years, who cares that you fell down? Yeah. That's what I always say. It's bad at the time. And I know people get nervous. but That's how you feel now. But how did you get over that sort of nerves at the time? Well, just by powering through, I think. Yeah. And, and forcing yourself. Forcing yourself. And, yeah. and this next poem, you know, all that. <laughs> and, and, and then, you know, standing up and going, 
somebody else have a go, you know, and that kind of thing. But then eventually you think, well, you know, do it, do it, mm. you fool, you know. And I, I met a, this, this this fella, this dancer, Andy, and he said it's all about breathing. Breathing is the thing. If you can control your breathing, so mm. I do talk fast if you've noticed, <laughs> but I can breathe. Mm. So breathing, breathing's half the thing. Yeah. Breathing just calms you down. You think, I'm in charge, these people. When I do gigs in the village halls, I always like to meet and greet the audience as they come in, and I give them a postcard and I say hello, because then you're in their space. You yeah. Have, and they're coming in, what I mean is, they're coming into your space. Come yeah. in, come in, come into my space. So it's just tricks and techniques like that that you learn. But when you first start, yeah, you're scared to death, you're, you're sweating, yeah. and you kind of, you look down all your poems, you think, none of these poems are any good. <laughs> what am I going to do? Oh, dear. <laughs> you mentioned before that you did work on, in the tennis ball factory, yeah, yeah, didn't yeah. you? And you, did you work on a building site as well, is that right? building site, So yeah. was it at that point where you... Was there any a, a, was there any moment when you thought it wasn't going to happen, or I think I always thought it would. Uh, I just had this kind of really stupid, naive belief that it's going to happen. So, and the thing about the building site was that was all right because it was fairly lax. How old were you then? I was you? just left college. So I'd be twenty-one, right? Uh, and it was nineteen seventy-eight. I got married in seventy-nine. That's right. So mm -hmm. about that time, but it was fairly casual and lax. So you could say, look, I've got a gig. I used to get odd readings, so I've got a reading so and so. And they said, oh, I have a day off, that's fine. Mm. But then uh, there was a recession in 1980, so I got the sack, and then I went to work in this tennis ball factory. And at the time when I went, I thought, well, actually, this will be all right because it's a mechanical thing mm. and I'll be able to think about writing. But in fact, because you had to concentrate a little bit, the writing was draining away, and that's when I applied for this thousand quid. So, you know, if I hadn't have done, people say it was a big decision to apply for the thousand quid and give your job up, but. To me, the opposite would have been the case, you yeah. know, that to still have been in that job or one of them jobs. For instance, my mate Dave, Dave Thorpe, that I went to college with, he worked in a factory in Newark, had three years at college, went back to the same factory, has worked in the same factory all his life. Mm -hmm. His mum and dad had died, he lives in their house. To me, that takes a kind of courage to go back to the same place every day. You know, I, I just, it wasn't courageous what I did, but... It's the tennis ball factory and the building site kind of convinced me, I suppose, what I didn't want to do, mm. I suppose. That was it. It made me think, well, actually, I may as well make some of this writing job because I don't want to be stuck here. And I, I'm not that clever to be able to have a, you know, a, 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 a job, a career. I mm. wanted a career. My mate Martin was a social worker, yeah. a kind of emergency social worker, so he could have time off. But he had a career. And once you're on a career ladder... Yeah. It's hard to get off. So yeah. if you just freelance, so that was the thing. But it just felt like just all all it felt like was this is. So that's why you know every now and then after nearly forty years doing it, I think I can't believe it. I cannot believe my luck. It's and people say, well, you've worked out. You think, well, I've, I haven't worked like my father-in-law down the pit. I yeah. haven't worked like my dad going to an office every day or, or being in navy and being shot at. You know, like, this is <laughs> yeah. this isn't work, is it really? <laughs> what was your actual sort of role in the tennis ball well, factory? Tennis ball factory, well. When I first arrived, I was put on the buff and dip right. machine, which was, it's like a, a wheel with tennis, half tennis ball shaped things on it. And you get some pliers and put the half tennis balls in and they go around the back and right. they get buffed and then dipped in glue and come back, you take them out. Right. You do that, you just keep doing that. You do it 5,000 times, then they let you go. And of course you can't stop doing it. So you know, you throw your tea out the window. And, and it was horrible, it was terrible. And you keep doing that and then they go, uh, You've got a degree. I said, yeah. I said, come work on the presses, the presses. And so that was like, you got these half tennis balls, you, stuck them, you put them in these presses, you stuck them together, you stuck together. Yeah. 
anything. Unlike and the seam, the sort of right, curly seam, like yeah. And they put 14, 21 pounds of pressure in, unless they're high altitude, in which it's 14 pounds. <laughs> and they shut, and it takes 10 minutes to seal. You know, right. That's brilliant. Sit for 10 minutes, read Jack Kerouac books. No, <laughs> you've got to fill this other one. You go up to the other one. She never stopped. It was murder. But the best thing about it was, there was interesting characters there. There was a bloke who was an alcoholic. We always had like, regular nights, he had like rattling tins in his thing, and they went, I, he, what he, he can't half play that clarinet. He can play that clarinet. And, and you get stories, but then what happened was the clarinet bloke collapsed. Right. And we thought he was drunk, and he wasn't. It was, there was some kind of terrible stuff going through the aircon. Oh, no. And, and they're going, right, evacuate the factory. And for the best six months of my life, we had to turn up for work, then get sent home for six months. Great, I wrote all these poems. But that was what that was my job there. And they, it was, I remember they used to get rubber delivered from Malaysia. Right. With these spiders as big as this table. These massive spiders. I'm not scared of spiders, but I'm not a big fan. And they go, come on, look at this, man. Come on, look at this. Come on, look at this round here. And you go around the corner, look at that kid, look at that. These big spiders. And then they used to, they had a draw. You'd like this bucket with your name in. Because every year, a week's worth of tennis balls, 38,000 tennis balls were sent 30, to Wimbledon. Right. And so, and all the bosses went down. But yet one worker was allowed to go. So you go, put your name in. I'm sorry, it's not you. But one worker was allowed to go. Oh, tennis so this ball is the Slazenger factory. Slazenger, yeah. yeah. They made, um, they made th- I mean, 38,000 dozen, actually, a week. And they, they had a... It was a squash ball factory yeah. in the next village to where I live. And then a... What was it? It was a tennis racket factory in Aubrey. Right. Near Wakefield. I think it was tennis rackets. And if you weren't working very hard, they'd threaten you with Aubrey because they knew it with three buses. Right. So people used to call it Jesus Christ Aubrey. You used to go, you've got to go to Aubrey, Jesus Christ. It's like Jesus Christ Aubrey. Yeah, they've done it. And it, now it's um, it shut years ago and it's now an, an housing estate called Tuscan Gardens. Right. Which goes back to when they were redesigning Barnsley in the early 90s. The architect Will, I've got his second name, mm. said that Barnsley could become a Tuscan Hill village. Right. So there's two or three streets in Barnsley called Tuscan Gardens. So yeah, the <laughs> tennis ball factory. Gosh, what a place. What a, but then again, you know, it gave you lots of stories. That's yeah. a fact. Yeah. Like these places do. The weirdest thing that it was, the thing that's totally died out now, if a woman was getting married, uh, and there weren't a lot of hen parties and stag parties in those days, they would they old. They got an old. Um, wedding dress in a back cupboard and the dresser up in it. Right. And covering things like the Thai cans of beer and condoms <laughs> and sort of wedding <laughs> regalia and parade around factory. Right. And you'd have to give her a, a quid. And then and it, it's like a folk thing that. That's totally yeah. died out. Yeah. They used to do it a bit in the potteries. If a man was getting married, they'd do the same thing, they'd dress him up like in a suit, mm. and then tar covering him in tar. <laughs> and tie them to a lamppost. This was slightly more gentle yeah. than that. Seems a bit nicer. It is a bit nicer. <laughs> you did mention at one point there the um, the music, because you have mm. always been involved in music as well, haven't yeah. you? So what's, what's, what was the big musical inspiration back in the... Oh, the well, year? for me, Captain Beefer. Right. The great Captain Beefer. God, I mean, I, I used to listen to John Peel yeah. every night when he was on the afternoon. I mean, the afternoon used to be on a Sunday afternoon, Saturday afternoon, then in the evenings. So Sunday afternoons were going this interminable Sunday afternoon drive. <laughs> My dad driving really slowly because he where to? He, he, well, from our house in Darfield to a place through Great Houghton where my mother used to live. Yeah. And he, my dad would do the same routine. He go, we're now driving through Great Houghton. Where <laughs> what was it? 
with Dick Turpin Road with his horse, Black Beauty, and then we'd have to go, no, it's Black Bess. It was always the same routine, and they go, we are now passing the famous Ducky Pond, and it was like this area of mud. And then we'd go, we are now arriving at, and it was Danny's Ice Creams. We'd have a Danny's Ice Cream. And then and my dad would be going, hey, wonder if, and he'd be singing. And then, at the same time, I'd be listening to John Peel it back, and right. my dad would go, turn that row off, and which has always been a, like, you've got to listen to it, if they yeah. say that to you. So people like Soft Machine, yeah. and... But Captain Beefer, God, he was the man. I love, I still love Captain Beefer. Just because, really, when you listen to it, it's just the blues yeah. turned up a notch. But my dad knew that I loved Captain Beefer, and I Trap Mask Replica, triple album, and I'd turn it on and he'd uh, listen to that in the other room. <laughs> so, like, listen to it. But then, when I was 15, he's, <laughs> he, uh, Captain Beefheart's album, Lick My Decals Off Baby, had just come out. So I says to my dad, can I have Lick My Decals Off Baby? And he went, I can't say that to the lady in the shop. I said, no, you can't. So he said, so he went to Neil's Music Shop in the arcade in Barnsley. And he says, I can't say Lick. So what he did, he wrote it down on a piece of paper. So he went into the shop and he goes, Erm, and he passed this thing that went, Lick My Decals Off Baby. So, <laughs> so Mr Neil had to be called. Oh, gee, I remember that so vividly. In fact, I wrote, I wrote a song about it with this band I used to have. So, so it's <laughs> stuff like that, and it's still the kind of stuff I like. I'm a big fan of avant-garde, yeah. or as they say, avant-practice. No, I'm a big fan of the <laughs> weird, the wild, you know, stuff like... And have Stuart you been Lincoln in lots of bands? Zone. Well, yeah, when I was... The other thing that when I was showing off, hmm. uh, me and my mate Martin formed Basley's first folk rock band, Oscar the Frog. Right. And... I was the drummer, but we had no drums. So I had, to, I had Tupperware, like big Tupperware, like salad Tupperware. And I had no drumsticks, so I had to use my mum's knitting needles. And we, we practised in Martin's back room, and there was me on Tupperware, him on bass, a kid called Steve Sutcliffe on guitar, yeah. and another kid on guitar and a, a keyboard player. And we didn't quite know what we wanted to do. And we're singing like Ride a White Swan. I think every child of 13 or 14 should be in a band. It should be a rite of passage. My hmm. grandson plays guitar and he wants to be in a band. And you think, you got it, you got it. But then. There's something brilliant about it. There's something it, brilliant it? about yeah. it. And then we, we, went, we didn't quite know what to do. So then we went to Barnsley Civic Hall and watched a long forgotten folk band called Mr. Fox. And we said, we're going to be folk rock. Folk rock is the coming thing. Folk rocks. We wrote these folk rock songs. <laughs> and the, 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 the church youth club had heard about this. And they went, look, there's a jumble sale on. Saturday afternoon, can you go and play at the jumble sale? 20 minutes. I said, all right. So what we'll do is we'll let him, we'll let him get bang, then we'll open the curtains. God, it was the most humiliating thing because you'd hear, you hear them bangs, all this noise. This bloke, Mr. McCardle, Roland McCardle, he went, I'm opening curtains, boys. And he opened these curtains. And we just played. Nobody looked up, nothing. Just, just playing away, banging this. And then he closed the curtains. And I went, that was fantastic. And it like give you this thing, showbiz, that's what I want to do. So, yeah. But I was the world's worst drummer. So we'd get through gigs. <laughs> At least you didn't have much kit to lug around that's there with true, your Tupperware. That's true. So Tupperware, terrible. And then somebody rang up and said, I saw your band the other day, you weren't in it. And they sacked me <laughs> no. and Martin without telling us. No. They, went, they got a new Tupperware got, player. They, got, and they went, we thought you'd lost interest. I said, it's because I'm rubbish. <laughs> so then me and Martin, we just loved doing it. So we formed this duo called Yakety Yak. They just went around spouting rubbish everywhere and then so that was what I did and then uh, I did a bit of work with this band called the Angel Brothers mm. from Doncaster just really talking over beats that was and we did a session for Andy Kershaw on Radio 3 and then my agent Adrian I've been working a lot with Luke Carver Goss this musician we call him that so people don't think he's Luke Goss <laughs> number of times we turn up at schools and women of a certain age <laughs> teachers to with Luke Goss albums but <laughs> then we formed this thing called the Ian McMillan Orchestra, which was so much fun. It was me talking, Luke on Squeezebox. We had a hurdy-gurdy player, 
wow brilliant god you could hear it from the next postcode <laughs> we had to have sound checks just to turn it down <laughs> she was great she she's brilliant Eddie Gurdy player she played a, a nickel harper and a hardanger fiddle and but the trouble was and we had guitar bass and squeeze box as well but it was just too expensive to keep on road because hmm. there were six of us and two of us lived in south yorkshire two lived in wales two lived in london and it was all right, we did it for a few years, but then it's now down to me and Luke mm -hmm. doing the music. And we are right, in fact, I should have brought you a copy of the album, forgot to bring <laughs> uh, We did this, just done this album. And, and, that's the, and I'm writing songs. Right. And I'm also working a lot with composers. I'm working with Anne Dudley, who used to be in a band called Art of Noise. Oh, yeah. We're writing a big piece for a choral thing in Hertfordshire. And I do like that. I like working with composers and musicians mm. because it teaches you that you don't write, you don't need many words, mm. that they, Obvious things like the vowel is more important than the consonant because you can sing a vowel. Yes. And just to try and what I love is songwriters like what was it on My Fair Lady? I've often walked down this street before, but the pavement always stayed beneath my feet before. I think blimey, that is so clever. It yeah. rhymes internally, it's got the right rhythm. The best songs for me are like ordinary language just held at fire a bit. You know, <laughs> just caught fire a little bit and banal almost. You know, the total eclipse of the heart. Mm. It's a stupid song in a way, but you think he's just swapping heart for son, yeah. and he's made it into a song. So, so I've always been interested in that, and I think I want to do more of that, definitely. Yeah. I wrote an opera in Yorkshire dialect for a fellow from Salford, a composer called Alan Williams, and that was interesting, to see if you could get the way I speak into opera, because the flat vowel yeah. is really hard for the operatic note, because you know, to do the ah. Oh, we don't speak like that. No. Any northerner will have a flat, and so what you get, and so we said, can this be done? Can you transfer the flat vowel to the operatic note? And we probably found out that we couldn't. We had, some people would end up singing like cod Yorkshire, so they would yeah. sound like they were taking it the never mickey. sounded authentic. It never sounded authentic. So, so I'm, I'm a very, that's, that's my core thing, I think, in the mm. end, is just this interplay of language and music and to see how that works. Yeah. So, you know, as I, as I get older, maybe that's what I'll be doing more of. I don't know. Yeah. I might Did go back to Tupperware. Yeah. That'd be the thing. Did you ever learn a, another instrument no, apart from the Tupperware? No, that was it. The Tupperware was it. <laughs> Tupperware is the thing. The thing was with the knitting needles, <laughs> because they were so light. And then I could. I did. We eventually got some drums, but of course I couldn't do that thing with the feet. You know, the feet and the hands at the same time. God, no. I was always there for comedy value. We did um, a gig at Eldon Street Youth Club in Barnsley, and there was that song called "Cause I Love You" by Slade. Where he's where not not the older the other fella he's playing the fiddle, mm. and the Skinners thought it was great, but then one of them pinched Steve Sutcliffe's fiddle and he was running about like playing it. So <laughs> Steve Sutcliffe's dad turned up right. to tell these skinheads off, and they pinched his trilby, and they're running around. With God, I, I always think I'm making these stories up, but they're all true. God. Did you ever think at any point, you know, amid all the sort of things that were going on, that you would try like stand-up comedy or anything like that was that ever a, a I've always a, made people laugh I can make people laugh that is a fact I'm good at making people laugh yeah most of the time you know I've got kind of funniness but I, won't, I couldn't be a comedian because I think I think partly it's because it's the element of surprise mm. if you go oh but this boy hey he's funny that's a surprise right I put this comedian he's gonna be funny then yeah you know so and I like making stuff up like when I do the gigs with Luke we have a flip chart and we get the I'll start a song off, and we just get the audience to shout stuff. We mix them it up, and then I, I, at the end of the second half, I get the audience to shout out just a few words, and he starts the rhythm, and I just make a song up. And that's kind of a bit like what a comedian might do. But so a lot of what I do has got an element to stand up in it, I think. Mm. Uh, but I don't tell jokes as such. I tell a joke that, and and kind of 
make it ridiculous. Mm. But a lot of it's just just ridiculousness, just <laughs> just making people laugh. And I'm, I'm the thing you, as you know, when you'll you'll see an audience laughing, there's one not laughing. You think, yeah. Right, you bugger! I'm going to make you laugh. And sometimes you can't do it. And, but yeah, it's, it does become a disease to yeah. make people laugh. That is a fact. And I guess you're right. It's probably a great advantage to be a poet who is, is. funny, yeah, rather, got, you know, because there's many, many comedians, but there's not that many no, people um, in people's perception of poets that are funny. No, and just to come on and so uh, and they make them laugh. Yeah. You know, at the start of a show, I just I do stupid things like I've got a load of notices that I've picked up at Village Hall, just hold them up and talk about them. Just brilliant. One that I found in uh, a Village Hall in the Lake District. And they said, can you use our new dressing rooms? We're really proud of them. I said, yeah, I've just got money from the lottery to do it. Yeah. These dressing rooms, two notices. One that says, please do not close the curtains. <laughs> well, that's daft because it's a dressing room. And this other one that says, please switch the stairs lights off. If you can read this, you've not switched them off. <laughs> so I said, well, what's the point of that one that says shut the curtain? Don't shut the curtains. She says, well, if you shut the curtains, you can't see that one. So you just make a routine about that. And then what was the other one? That's a great one. And it's weird. We found it. I think with me and Tony were down in Devon and we found a tree and it's like when somebody's lost a dog or a cat they put a notice on a tree and this one just said in huge letters on this tree it said where can we go to watch people play badminton and eat our sandwiches <laughs> and it just says the word badminton with big letters and you think god so i just read that out and then i found one the other day and it, it was in where was it some little village hall furbeck near maltby near rotherham and it mm. just said to prevent noise Whilst an event is going on, please make sure you lock the widow. God, lock the widow. And then you go, have you seen what you've done? And they go, what? So, yes, yeah, so it's just stuff like that. And I just get up and I, just, and I get the audience joining and I talk about accents. And so I just, and, and they end up being like long stories. And I just like making people laugh. And I, yeah. I like watching them when, when they're laughing until they cry. The other week it happened in a weird way. We were at, um, can't remember where we were, me and Luke. And I made this joke up that weren't very funny. I said, and I said, I'm going to try a joke on you now. And I said, um, <laughs> did you hear about the hippie who was a very messy eater? He knew which side his beard's buttered. <laughs> which is a crap joke. But this bloke in the front row, he started laughing. And he's laughing and laughing and laughing. And he's crying with laughter. And his wife's going, well, it's not funny. And he took his glasses off and his face was red. He just lost it. Just lost it. And then Luke starts singing this sensitive love song. And he, Luke gets the giggles. This bloke's laughing. People are looking at him. Sh so that, and I don't know what happened there. I don't, I, I, it was, he's not a great gag. It's not a good gag. But he, he kind of tickled him. Well, you know, that's it, you don't know. Some people, everyone gets tickled yeah, by different and, things, don't they? Yeah, they do, and that, that, that definitely tickled him. God. <laughs> yeah, I just wanted to ask you about Darfield as well, yes. by the way, because you said, obviously, that's where you're from. And that's yes, where you, I still live. You yeah, still yeah, live. Yeah. Were you ever tempted <laughs> to move anywhere else? Not really, no. I mean, uh, my dad did tell me towards the end of his life that because he lived in Sheffield, we almost moved to Sheffield because it would have been easier. Mm. And I would have been a Dida. They call him. I would have been an Arden. I would have been a Wednesday or a United fan mm. rather than a Barnsley fan. That would have been what a terrible thought. <laughs> but um, no, I never, I never fancied moving. Partly because the place it is is so fascinating. Mm. You know, it's a, it's an ancient village. It was in the Doomsday Book. For years and years, nothing happened. People ate turnips. But then suddenly, <laughs> you know, the Lord of the Manor is somebody's digging in his garden. He goes. I've quite cooked it to the master. I found coal. Yeah. And he goes, Hallelujah. <laughs> so then. Massive coal field. People coming from all over Britain, all over the world to work in the pits. A boom town. Hmm. Barnsley was a boom town in the 70s. People working in pits. They weren't getting paid much, but the loads of them. Hmm. And then, you know, the strike, the miners' strike, which still reverberates around my village like a gong, yeah. you know, because people remember it. And then 
an attempt to reinvent it. You know, what do you do with the reason you're there has been taken away? Hmm. And so what we've got now is a lot of call centres. Um, we've got a big warehouse, ASOS warehouses in Darfield, right. just across the road in Grimethorpe. My, my daughter lives in Grimethorpe. And I, me and my wife were coming back from the theatre the other night, and she went, look at that, that's something you don't see often, we haven't seen for years. And it was a bus dropping evening shift workers off, which you wouldn't have seen for years, 20-odd people getting off a bus. Mm. So I like it because it's, it's utterly fascinating. And also, I couldn't live in, I've lived in the same house for 30-odd years, you know. Right. But somebody said to me, I was recording something in London, they went, do you maintain a base in Barnsley? <laughs> I call it my house, to be honest with you, because they think you can't live there. And, and also, on a practical level, if I'm going to Don- oh, brilliant I'm gonna London, I'm just go to Doncaster. Right. Or if I'm going to come across here, just go to Sheffield. Yeah. Mind you, the Verb, my Radio 3 show, yeah. we used to have it, it was in London for 10 years. And they went, Ian, good news, you're moving to Salford. <laughs> and I said, you think the north is a tiny little garden. Yeah. And, and it takes me actually 20 minutes longer to get here. It, really? Because yeah, oh. I get, you know, get Darf- Barnsley... Sheffield, Sheffield, Manchester, tram, Doncaster, train. You know, it, it's honestly... That is depressing, isn't it? I mean, it's, as the crow flies, it's from our house to here must be 45 miles at the moment. Yeah. I can't drive, you see, never got around to learning. Oh, so, really? How yeah. come? Just, well, two reasons, really. Um, firstly, in South Yorkshire in the 1970s, it was just so cheap. You know, two pence into Barnsley from Darfield, mm. ten pence. They wanted to make it free. Socialist Republic of South Yorkshire. They said we're going to make it free, free transport for everybody. But they went, you better let them pay something. Then mm-hmm. you got some kind of. And then I wrote a story about this. I thought I should learn to drive because everybody else is when they're seventeen. So I said I'm going to learn to drive. So I got these lessons, and I had this lesson with a bloke <laughs> who was more nervous than me. And I got in the car and he had these big sandals on, and massive two. And I remember these sandals vividly. And he went, with what my mother calls dithering. They were like nervous, shaking. And he went. Instead of saying grip the wheel at ten to two, he went grisp the wheel at ten past two. So I put my hands like that, and he smacked me. He said, "Don't be so stupid." So we set off. This is true. And we went hundred yards down the street on Barnsley Road to Barnsley Road Chapel. He says, "Wait here. I've got to get someone down at Chapel. I'll be one minute." So I'm sat there, and he's gone. So I thought, "Well, what's he doing?" So I, the car switched off. So I got out of the car, went in Chapel. He stood at the pulpit of this chapel, mumbling from the Bible, and it turned out he double booked my driving lesson with this portion of a 24-hour sponsored Bible reading. So he says, I'll not be a minute, I'll not be a minute. I says, forget it, forget it, driving's not for me. So I walked on. You knew that, I knew that was it. So then, when we had the kids, we've got three kids, when the kids are growing up a bit, I said to my wife, do you think I should learn to drive? Because she drives. She says, well, if you did, I won't get in with you. And then the kids came up in like a little delegation. They went, we've heard you learning to drive. So what I'm thinking about, they said, please don't. Don't do it. Because they know that I'm a great passenger. Look out the window. Yeah. But what all it means is that I am always ridiculously early for anything because yeah. I don't trust the trains because yeah. they're terrible they're appalling you know see and you get people going sorry I'm late I missed my connection you go well <laughs> so for example I don't need to be here to do the verb at Media City till maybe half nine hmm. which means I could get the ten past eight train but I won't get it in case it's late so I get the ten past the eight minutes past seven train <laughs> from which means I'm early I'm, yeah. if I'm going to London always early which means I spend half my life in station buffets. I'm the same. And it's great. I'm it? always early for everything. It's great. You've got to be early. And yeah. I think, and like I said, when I'm at a venue, come in. It's my space. And isn't it better than being late? Yeah. It is so great. Well, it means you spend a lot of time in station buffets, but it means that, that you, you know, there's nothing worse. And I, I, I made a programme about it for Radio mm. 4 about, called The Late Ian McMillan. And I interviewed some people who, who are late. And I talked to Phil Jupiter, and he doesn't like being late, but he said that Lee Evans does. Right. 
and he says he, he, he rides on that energy that when you walk in the crowd cheer ironically or his ear right but in the odd times that's ever happened to me because I've missed trains and stuff because it's not my fault I've been there yeah you know it's the worst isn't yeah. it it's the worst yeah and some people my mate Luke that I work with he's always on the cusp he'll ring up and go I'm running late mm. and I go does that mean you're late no I'm running late <laughs> but no no I don't think you're missing out on anything with driving <clears> by the way because it, I mean I can drive but if I can I always get public transport yeah, well, if, it's, if, it's, if it's reasonable time so, right, isn't yeah. it? I mean, the, the trouble is as we know northern trains aren't very good no, you know and it's, it's night, where do you live I just live in South Manchester, oh, so, so it's not, it's not bad, far from me. But I mean, going to London or going to oh, yeah, anywhere else, if I can get the train, easy, it's dead easy, yeah. I'll do that. Oh, right. I just wanted to pick you up on something, actually. You mentioned uh, Barnsley. I'm, Barnsley. I'm a big football FC. fan yeah. myself. Who's, who's your team? I'm Manchester United. Like Tony Usman, oh, yeah, <laughs> yeah, pleased. Yeah, 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 he was pleased last night. Tweeting about the PS2 Thank you for giving my team back, he said, didn't he? But, I mean, did you go and watch them when you... Because you were made the poet in residence. poet in residence, yes. So how did that feel when you were asked to do that? I mean, to be honest, as a kid, I didn't go because my dad wasn't into football. He was right. a fan. Well, he was a fan of Third Lanark, right? Who've since disappeared. But his thing was fishing. Right. So he'd take me fishing. But then, when we had the kids, the kids going take us to football. So right. I started going. And then, I love it. I love the fact that it's exciting. It's it's dramatic. Hmm. You can see, as you know, you can see endeavour and farce and tragedy and hmm. bravery. It's got everything. It's got everything, it, and it happens in real time. And the team that you should beat beats you. Yeah. And the team that you should, and, and the opposite. Yeah. But what it means, so then what happened was, we the promotion season, 20 odd years ago, 97, mm. 98, when we got promoted, my mate who was a teacher said, let's ring Barnsley FC up, see if they want a point. So I rang him up and said, do you fancy having a point? And being <laughs> Barnsley FC, they said, well, it cost us all. And normally I would, I'd charge, but I thought, we're going to get a load of publicity out of yeah. this. And we did. And it got on everything. Were there any a, other poets in residence no, at that time? No, I that's the one, right. I, I remember now, yeah. And we got on Five Live and everything. If we yeah. played away, we get on that. The one I still do it for is Chris Gorham, who presents on Radio Norfolk. Right. So whenever Norfolk and Bar Norwich and Barnsley are the same thing, we'll have a chat and we'll write a poem. Really? It was great. What it means is, I mean, I get heckled anyway, walking down the street, because <laughs> they all know me. Uh, but... Barnsley, easy here, point, easy here, don't say all till put it in a point, and then put that in the book, they get hold of it, there's a bloke that sits behind me, comes down every week from Newcastle, because from Barnsley. Do you have a season ticket now? A, yeah, yeah, a season ticket, and he'll go, put that in the book, put that, put that in the points, but it's great, you know, I love it, and it's, it's, being a, being a Barnsley fan's not dull, that's a fact, mm. you know, over 20 years of our promotions, relegations, Beat Man United in the cup. Yeah. Wonderful game. The great Scott Jones scored two headers. Never seen him before or since. He just turned <laughs> up scored two headers. We scored the most offside goal you've ever seen when Schmeichel ran out and John Hendry <laughs> ran up and scored this offside goal and went, well, it's offside, but the referee <laughs> gave it. But then, it's so exciting. And yeah. at the moment, at Barnsley FC, exciting times. You know, second in League One. Yep. Got this German manager who plays Presgazang football. We're, we're, we're excited at Barnsley at the moment. And, and I love it. I love football because, to me, it's like... When I go and see a film, I can guess the end. Yeah. And you go and see a match, you think, we're going to smack... And they, they beat you. And, yeah. and that's the exciting thing about yeah. it. And I like being in a crowd of people who are like you. Yeah. That's what I like. You know, yeah. it's easier, you know, it, it, the poet. And, and it don't matter that all these people that stood around you. And you can be rivals, our big rivals of Sheffield Wednesday... The Dida's, because that's how they speak. Nah, didn't you? What are you Dida? The referee's a Dida. We all shout. And, and the one claim to fame is that uh, we had a goalkeeper called Lars Lees, 
Big Tombo. And I wrote this poem, they went, Lars Lees, tall as the trees that grow in one well wood. Lars Lees, listen please, we think you're very good. And uh, <laughs> then this, they pointed out, it's actually pronounced Lars Lees. But then, some crowd went, Lars Lees, tall as the trees. Oh, that's me, that's very Brilliant. good. But, oh, aye. So, yeah, football. Football is, is a fantastic thing. And, and you take the long view. Yeah. You know, so you think, we might not go up this year, we might get relegated. But you just think... You hope it's always going to be there, and you're always going to be able to yeah. sit in that seat. And I take my grandson. I always took me three kids. Yeah, I took me my nephews. So it used to be me and five of them on supporters coach. Now it's just down to me. My eldest daughter will still go, but she's got a little baby. And then my grandson, he's he's going, and he uh, he likes it, and he plays football for his local pub. You know, mm. so it's so it's just a thing. I mean, it's just, and I think you should support the place you're from. Yeah. You know, and Barnsley is not the most glamorous place in the world, but it's it's you know it's exciting, it's interesting. It's, yeah, ah, I do like it. Brilliant. And cricket and all. Yorkshire oh yeah, cricket. <laughs> I like cricket. Uh, do you go to see your? I go see. I go to Headingley. You always yeah. bump into Dickie Bird. And yeah. Like Dickie Bird is because you meet so many people. Don't know who you are. So <laughs> yeah. it's this fantastic thing that I've adopted. When he when he sees you, he goes, "Out, lad. Uh, how's the project?" And go, "Yeah, I'm still writing the project." Yeah. All right, and then Brilliant. So I've started doing Catch that. How's the project? Oh yeah, I'm still doing. Oh yeah, and you know, yeah. So I've started doing that. <laughs> anyway, we're not talking about. That's a good way. tip, isn't it? For yeah, it's a good tip. Anyone oh, you don't know, because you know you meet people yeah. and you forget who they are. How's the project? Because <laughs> they're going to tell you. <laughs> oh dear. I'd like to finish Ian by asking you a couple of questions that I ask everybody. Yes, of course. So the first one is, do you have a daily routine? Is there a set thing that you do every morning to get you set up for the day? Yes. Uh, I wake up ridiculously early. What time? Half past four. Half past four? Yeah, Naturally? I wish I, I wish I didn't. I wish I didn't. Like with an Naturally, alarm clock? I just wake up. Right. Ding. Don't know why. Don't have you always to. done that? Yep. Not so much when I was a teenager, but the last 30 years, yeah. Wow. Don't know why. Partly because on our street, there used to be a guy who worked at the pit and he would go on morning soup and... My next door neighbour's a taxi driver, so he sometimes comes in late. But every morning, wake up at half four. Don't want to. Oh, late like that. So then I get up. I get up every morning at five o'clock. And uh, I do exercises. And my wife thinks I'm having a stroke. <laughs> First time I do now, I'm doing press-ups and that. Because you've got to try and keep fit. Yeah. And then I go for my early morning stroll. Right. Every morning, round Darfield, on my early morning stroll. The same route, down our street, down this hill, back up this other hill, back to our Just house. by yourself? By myself. Yeah. Just walking like that. Tweeting as I go, yeah. I'm a big tweeter. You do I tweet, tweet a time. lot, yeah. So I tweet, and it just started off with thinking, I've got to, I've got to try and be healthy, because you know, you get to sixty, I've got to be healthy. So mm. I'm walking, and I see stuff, and I'm tweeting, and now it's become like an industry. Ian McMillan's early morning tweet, somebody, a composer, set it for baritone and avant-garde guitar, <laughs> fantastic. Somebody else has done a book of them, but you see amazing things, like I always say, the best thing I ever saw was a man in a high-vis jacket walking past a man in a camouflage jacket and they cancel each other out. And he, and he kind of went, well, it's like a do-it-yourself eclipse. So that's my routine. Wake up, get up. Because it for, and then get up and force your brain hmm. to do a tweet. Yeah. Make your brain work. Do it. Make it work. So this morning, what was it? I got up and I thought, morning has opened... No, Thursday. morning's open, Thursday's tin or something. <laughs> Just some daft thing, you tweet it. Hmm. Get out there... See things, get back, tweet them, make your brain work. Has Twitter been a bit of a gift for you as a poet? Certainly has. And it was thanks to one of my producers at Radio 3. She went, You ought to, you ought to go on Twitter. I'm going, out. And then suddenly you get on it, you become addicted to it. Because mm. I guess the, the, you've got the compulsion well, to I write, and, and you, you've it's got the to perfect write, and medium and it, in a way. And it isn't is because you think, There's my audience, there's yeah. an audience. And it just yeah. makes you think, you know, you think, you're, you know, you're on a train. I saw something, I saw, I put a crow in a tree like a goth in a bedsit. <laughs> oh, that's a cracker. Tweet that. And then people you see on trains. 
tweet about him. You have to be careful. I once saw a bloke eating a bag of crisps and he was like bashing the bottom of the crisp like that. And I put, this fellow's enjoying his crisps. And he tweeted about, yeah, I'm going on holiday. Because he, he didn't follow me, but he recognised me and started following me. So there is a bit of that. But, so it's that. So, you know, when I go home tonight, I'll tweet. But the, the, the downside of getting up at half past four hmm. is that when I go on the train tonight, I'll fall asleep. If I get the wrong train, I'll wake up in Cleetho. <laughs> That is the problem. My wife, she goes, you don't have to get up that early. Yeah. I said, well, actually, I do. Because at half past four, I feel so alert. I right. feel so... Just, just the way I am, you know, I can't help it. I'm not being macho about it at all. Mm. I just like getting up. Is that your sort of peak creative peak, time? Peak creative, really? yeah, yeah. Early morning. But then the trouble is, a lot of my work's in the evenings. Yeah. If all my gigs could be at <laughs> nine o'clock in the morning, God, that'd be great. But then, so when I get home tonight, it'll not be particularly late. It'll be a bit later than normal, so I'll be mm. home maybe about half eight. Mm. I know that I'll sit on the settee and I'll... And that is the problem. It's just... So that's my other routine, falling asleep. <laughs> falling asleep on the train. I, I do that thing... The other day I was on the train, I did that thing where you fall asleep, you're leaning out like that into the corridor. Like that. <laughs> <laughs> or you do that other thing where you, like, you fall asleep on a bloke's shoulder. Yeah. And then you... Oh, that's my other routine. But that's my main routine. Get up early. And I always said to people, if you can get up, mm. get up, because there's a bit of spare time then. You know, the day yeah. hasn't kicked in. Nobody's going to... No one else is up. about. Nobody else is about. Get a bit of work done. Get thinking. Nobody's emailing you. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, and, and if I'm not, like this morning, I leave the house at quarter past six, so I don't have time for a stroll. So I always tweet, I'm not doing my stroll today, and people go, oh, shit. <laughs> There's people, other people think you make it up. Think you sit it out. Yeah. <laughs> just so you can't be bothered to say, I'll just tweet. Oh, dear. That's my routine. That's my routine. Got it. All right. Now, and final question, mm. then. Mm. And this can be music or a book or... Mm. Um, something you're watching on telly if you get time to do that yeah, I do, what I are do. you enjoying right now what have you or what have you really enjoyed very recently sort of that's for, like for entertainment or for you know music two things I think I've really enjoyed Endeavour oh right on the telly I never I don't I didn't watch, watch Endeavour we don't watch much telly who's in that is that the um, oh Rod uh, what's his name Roger Allen oh, Roger yeah. Allen he's got the most amazing face and we don't watch much telly me and my wife but I said let's give this a go hmm. And I was gripped. It was the, the the language of it, the plotting. I've tried to write a few plays and I'm rubbish at plot. And they go, look, you can't come in through that door because you went through that door. <laughs> no, yeah. But I can, that one, so I've enjoyed Endeavour, four episodes of that. Yeah. Two hours long, so it's quite long. All right, of, yeah. Each uh, one's two hours. Each one's two hours, and so it's a big investment. That's a commitment, isn't it? Yeah, especially if you try and nod off. <laughs> but I said to my wife, don't turn the light off, for God's sake. I just go, and so, so I watched that. That's the Endeavour has been great. Mm. The acting the writing, the sense of time, mm. which is set in the late 60s, mm. the sense of place. So I've been enjoying that. Uh, I've also been listening to I listen to a lot of podcasts. Mm. There's a programme on Radio 3 called Jazz Now. Okay. It plays my kind of squeaky gate jazz <laughs> that empties the room. So on my, on my early morning stroll, <laughs> I always put my stroll soundtrack, and it's often a bit of... That kind of stuff that I love. So a bit of that. And then in terms of reading... Uh, I've just, I've been, I, read, I read a lot of poems, mm. uh, and so I'm trying to think what I've been reading for pleasure, because the thing is, I have to read a lot of books for my radio show, yeah. so then occasionally you get to read one that's not for the show, and I still pre I go out and bite and pretend to my wife that I've been sent it. <laughs> you're not buying books and all, are you? Yeah. So what, what was it? I've just read, <laughs> well, that's what I reread my favourite novel of all time, which is called Under the Volcano right. by a guy called Malcolm Lowry. It was written in the late 40s. And when you describe it, it doesn't sound that great. It's about the last day in the life of an alcoholic ex-British consul in a small town in Mexico. 
but it's written in the most amazing prose style. Mm. And every couple of years I get it down, just read it again and remind myself that that is proper writing. So mm. that's what I've, that been, I've been reading. It's, it, the, fir the first chapter yeah. is really hard, and you think, this book is rubbish. <laughs> and I always say to people, once you get through the first chapter, leave it if you want. Then it's just, it's just glorious, glorious language and writing. And in fact, I've put, I pull, pulled out my copy the other day, and I noticed on the second page there was a red stain, and it was actually stuff from the buff and dip machine <laughs> at the tennis ball factory. Oh, really? I used to read it on nights, huh. and this is stuff. My wife said, is that right, Ben? I said, no, it's buff and dip. Amazing. Yeah. So that was the last time you read it? No, I read it. I, that was the first time I read it. That's the first time and you so, read it, sorry. And and then it's always the same copy. Before you read it, it's copy. yeah. Amazing. I keep reading it, and I've had copies since, but then this one turned up. I thought, blimey, it's my original copy from 1978. Oh, it's a great, great book. They tried to make a film of it with the late Albert Finney, which didn't quite work, because it's one of them books that there's no point trying to film it. Hmm. You know, so... Brilliant. Well, I'll look that up. Yeah, it's worth looking at. Thanks for talking to me, and Thank really you, I enjoyed it. it. I enjoyed it. As you know, I like rattling. Yeah. <laughs> My wife says she's going to get me a badge made that says, we'll spout bollocks for cats. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for listening, as always. Hope you enjoyed uh, listening to Ian's stories as much as I did. Definitely one of the uh, f funniest interviews I've done. It just uh, seemed to <laughs> pour out of him the funny line. So I really hope you enjoyed that. If you did, please rate it on your podcast provider. Please tweet about it if you want to share it with people. Share it on any social media platform. Also, get in touch, as I mentioned at the start, creativeforcespod at gmail.com or via Creative Forces P on Twitter, or you can find us on Facebook. Finally, if you're feeling really generous and you want to support the podcast uh, financially, you can do. There's a Patreon page for it. It's patreon.com forward slash Creative Forces Pod. Anything you can give would be very welcome, but don't worry if you can't. Just keep on enjoying. Thanks for listening. See you soon. <laughs>